Last week we looked at a few verses, and we're going to look at a a bigger chunk. However, we're going to start reading from the same point as last week. So once you've found Mark chapter 6, find halfway through verse 6, and uh, we may have it up on the screen as well, so you can follow there if you don't have a Bible. Brill. Okay, here we go. says this, then Jesus went round teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath. Whatever you are, an oath, an oath. (laughs) Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. What is your favourite sandwich? You can choose bread, brown, white, granary, other variations I'm sure, and the all-important filling. What's the filling that goes in your favourite sandwich? Any show of hands for the classic BLT? Bacon, lettuce, tomato? Still thinking, obviously. A few, a few there. Uh, tuna mayo, anyone? 
Tuna mayo, we've got one. Clearly, people have moved on from sandwiches nowadays <laughs> and have salads and couscous. Um, <laughs> anyway, what we have here is an absolutely whopping sandwich. In this passage right here, we've got the bread. The first layer of bread is Jesus gathering his disciples and saying, right, it's time for you to go. Um, And then there's another layer of bread at the end. The disciples coming back and reporting back to Jesus what they had done. And so that's kind of what we took a look at um, last week, the first bit of bread. When you've got a really massive sandwich um, and you take the first bite, you might just get a mouthful of bread and then you get into... uh, to whatever the filling is. So we, we kind of got into the bread last week. We looked at the disciples gathering to Jesus. Jesus' plan had always been to gather them, but with the express purpose, not only that they spend time with him, get to know him, um, but then that Jesus sends them out uh, with authority, with instructions, on a mission to lots of different villages. And we saw how Jesus uses imperfect people who don't feel ready yet to take part in his kingdom. We looked at how the disciples, well, they didn't really understand everything, didn't understand much, really, um, but Jesus kind of mobilizes them, sends them out, uses them. Um, They were doing what they were chosen to do, um, but again, it's remarkable to think, again, Jesus didn't kind of gather an all-star cast. He gathered some fishermen, gathered a tax collector who, I mean, nowadays that would be like a loan shark, a just total rotten egg. He says, no, come and follow me. Come and spend time with me. I've got plans to, to use you. So this bizarre bunch of ordinary blokes who don't have a massively kind of religious, academic, um, impressive background. They haven't made the grade. They're the kind of leftovers after other rabbis have been through town. Um, this bunch of guys is, is chosen and used. I love... Now, uh, Paul writes uh, to the Corinthians, says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 uh, and verse 26, he writes to that bunch of believers and says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things like tax collectors and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Uh, Paul even goes on to write himself. He says, look, when I came to you, chapter 2, just a few verses on, chapter 2, verse 1, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in weakness and fear, with much trembling. My, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might rest on men's wisdom, um, uh, might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So this is the this is the usual pattern. God uses ordinary people. God uses people of any age, any background, um, and calls them into His. Uh, kingdom at, with purpose in mind. And so here's this exciting point with that first slice of bread. That's what we're just looking at for now. Um, 
this exciting point where maybe these guys feel like they've just been thrown in the deep end. Now it's time to go. You what? Well, we're not really ready yet. No, that's it. It's, it's time. Um, so there's only so much you can learn by listening. Uh, we're called to learn by, by action and by doing and stepping out in faith. So they get properly thrown in the deep end. Um, and maybe, having been thrown in the deep end, they're like, well, that's kind of went all right, actually. I think I'll jump in of my own free will and accord. Right, let's do it again. So the 12 did the stuff. And we know that from that first slice of bread, verses 6 through uh, to 13, and in verse 12 and 13 there, we, we got that summary statement. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. And uh, so they've got some stories to tell about what God has done uh, through them as a result of Jesus sending them out. And um, this, is a, uh, this is a dramatic time and an exciting time. Uh, and whether they felt ready or not, they went for it. And I mean, really what we've been singing just now uh, are songs of devoted disciples I'm, whole, I'm wholly yours. I'm held in the power of your love or in your hands. Um, or I'm, I'm surrendering my all to you. Well, that's what these disciples had done. Yeah, they didn't understand everything, but they'd followed Jesus. And when Jesus said, it's time to go, they'd said, yes. We don't know what's going to be involved, but we're putting, our lives are in your hands. We're going your way. We want to be involved in what you're doing. These are exciting times, and we get to be involved in it. That's the joy of discipleship, but it means, goodness me, we're not in control. We're not in charge. This is us putting our lives at his disposal, saying we want to go, Jesus, where you want to send us. Like Isaiah, here I am, send me. That's what these disciples had said. Massively exciting time. And now... We come, to this, we come to the filling of the sandwich. And it's, it's, a, big, it's a big filling. Um, and it's really unusual. I think it gives us flavours that we wouldn't have chosen ourselves. So anybody here in there overlooking couscous for now, your favourite sandwich, would it involve Marmite? Yes, we have a, we have a few yeses. Brilliant. Um, scuppers that illustration marvellous, marvellously. But I grew up on, on, uh, on cheese and Marmite sandwiches. We've got some other interesting sandwich fillings through time that we've used as a family. I don't think we can recommend them, but um, sometimes for a season, peanut butter and pickle was a, was a favourite. Remarkable. An unusual, strange filling. Um, well, it's almost like Mark is giving us a really strange filling here. And, uh, and he's just over our shoulder saying, actually, this will be good for you. You might take a bite of it and think, oh, I'd, I'd rather read something else. I'd rather taste something different. It's strange for a number of reasons. It's strange because the focus isn't primarily on Jesus. Now, in the way that it starts, um, it is. King Herod has, has heard about Jesus' name, maybe the fact that his disciples have gone out village, uh, visiting more villages, uh, has just raised the profile of this man called Jesus. And, and people 
widely, all across Galilee and across the nation, are still trying to work out, well, who is he? And no one's worked this out yet. Um, we've been told right at the outset of the book, he's the son of God, he's the Messiah. Um, others are trying to work it out. So some say, well, he's Elijah. Others say, well, he's a prophet. And uh, others say, he's John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Uh, which is a bit odd, because we think, well, Jesus and John the Baptist were kind of contemporaries. They lived at the same time. Um, so now we're finding out that John the Baptist had died. And maybe some people thought, well, perhaps something of the spirit that was on him has got transferred onto Jesus. And that's explaining why Jesus is able to do um, miracles. So he's there. But the main focus is on John the Baptist. And the last time we heard about him was right back in chapter 1. He's the one who's the forerunner. He went ahead of Jesus, um, preparing the way. That's the introduction to Mark's gospel right in chapter 1. And uh, many people were, were turning back to God. He was calling people to, uh, to repent and, um, and get ready because God's king was coming. Um, and then we found out in chapter 1, verse 14, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee. Well, what on earth happened to John? What happened to the man who paved the way for Jesus' ministry? What happened to this powerful prophet um, who was speaking uh, for God in a nation that had really drifted quite a long way away from, uh, from faith in him? This provides us with a flashback, if you like. So again, Mark is making a specific choice. I'm telling you about this here. It's a, it's a flashback from verse 17 onwards to answer the question, well, what happened to John? Mark chooses this moment to explain. So we're going to look at what happens. We'll look at what's in, uh, if you like, the meat of this passage, the, the middle, the center, this unusual filling, and then we'll start to pick out a few, um, a few lessons, a few things for us to get hold of as we go through. Obviously, we meet King Herod. Now, at mention of King Herod's name, there should be a a big boo and hiss all around the room. King Herod. Oh yeah. He is a nasty piece of work. Uh, he's, he's shrewd. Uh, he's, got, he's absolutely merciless. Um, he's responsible for a lot of people being murdered. He loves luxury. He's known as a king. Kind of, He's got that informal title. Actually, he wasn't a king. He was what's called a tetrarch. So he was kind of ruler over an area, but not the whole nation. He is a powerful and sinister man. And he persuaded Herodias. Now you may also boo and hiss at this point. He persuaded Herodias. Oh yeah, bad news. Um, the wife of his half-brother, Philip, to leave her husband and marry him. Uh, and in so doing... Herod had to do the same. He had to abandon his wife in order to join together with Herodias. Um, now, John the Baptist is preaching repentance. He's preaching, come back to God. Come back to God's ways. Marriage was a big issue at the time. Roman and Jewish culture had, had drifted away. It was very, very easy, legally, to get a divorce. Um, and so it, it was happening at a frightening uh, rate and so that's the, that's the context. And so as soon as, as John starts to speak into the relevant issues of the day, he's going to get into some kind of confrontation with Herod. Maybe it had even been uh, kind of direct to him. 
um, because we're told uh, in verse 18, John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. This isn't right. Um, now let's look at Herod a bit more. Ooh, yes. Okay. Um, Herod has got a strange admiration for John. He doesn't like what he's saying about his marriage to Herodias. But there are other things he quite likes about what he says. So he, he does like and he doesn't like listening to John. So he's a bit, he's a bit passive. He wants to stop John from being this kind of nagging voice, kind of just jabbing at his conscience. This isn't right. God's way is different. He's drawn to him and he admires him in some ways, but he wants to put a stop to this uncomfortable criticism and he has him arrested. And then as the thing unfolds, we see what happens on this occasion with his his birthday banquet. We see a man who's proud, who's... um, putting on a big banquet really to impress other rulers. Uh, He's rash. He's probably had too much to drink at the point that Herodias' daughter does her dance. Mark doesn't go into detail, so let's not do that either. But somehow um, it prompts from Herod this, this rash promise. I'll give you anything, up to half my kingdom. And he promises it with an oath. Um... So that was maybe, he didn't expect to be taken literally, like literally you can have half of the kingdom. Um, But he's kind of saying, name it, name it, and I'll I'll give you what you want. Uh, Expecting her maybe to, I don't know, ask for a Kit Kat or something. Um, So he makes this drunken promise, and then this sobering moment, he realizes he's been totally backed into a corner. There's some other plot at work here. She goes off and chats to Herodias. Herodias makes kind of loses no time in saying, I want John the Baptist's head. He's put into this tight corner. He he doesn't really want to have John the Baptist killed. He just wanted to kind of silence him, to shut him up. Um, and now he'd rather save face because of his guests, because of the fact he made a promise. Um, then he would actually humble himself and say, no, I, I, I was rash. I shouldn't have promised that. There's lots of things you could have. But I'm not going to kill a man that he regarded as holy and righteous. So we see that in verse 20. Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. He likes to listen to him. He thinks he's righteous and holy. He doesn't think he deserves to die. He just wants him to stop nagging him about his marriage. And, oh, now he's backed into a corner. He's been passive. He's made a number of decisions, which maybe he just thinks, ah, it doesn't really matter. And, and now he's in a situation where he's pushed to do something. He really didn't feel that he should. There's Herod. We also meet Herodias, she is equally responsible for John the Baptist's, uh, sorry, for this mismatched marriage. Maybe she's actually really scared. If John the Baptist is preaching repentance, if John the Baptist is confronting my new kind of husband um, with the fact that our marriage isn't lawful, what actually happens if, if Herod does repent? What actually happens if Herod does get right with God 
what actually happens if he, if he does listen. I think she's absolutely petrified of what the consequences would be for her uh, if, if suddenly their marriage was made null. Um, but that fear becomes something else. It becomes an absolutely fierce anger. So she's biding her time. The opportunity hasn't presented itself for a while, but all the while she is nursing one massive, powerful grudge, and she wants to kill him. Um, Now what we see here in this couple is they are very, very similar to a couple in the Old Testament called Ahab and Jezebel. It says of Ahab that he did more evil to provoke the Lord than any king uh, before him. And he was married to Jezebel, who was from another nation, and she urged him on. She was the, she was the driving force. She was really uh, the, the controlling um, driving force in their relationship. Both together, they make this absolutely horrible match. And they get confronted by who? A prophet, Elijah. Here we have a couple getting confronted by a prophet, um, John the Baptist. And uh, it's a real tough uh, dynamic going on. So Herodias is controlling, she manipulates, she uses others, she uses her daughter, she probably instigates that plan. You go dance, and, uh, and then as soon as this rash promise is made, she's the one who makes the decision about what happens next. So she's not center stage, but she is kind of in charge, uh, and she wants to get her way one way or another. And the only way of silencing John the Baptist is to have him killed. That's what happens. See what I mean? This is a strange filling. We've got the disciples going, yes, we're off. We're preaching the kingdom. We're doing the stuff. We're doing what Jesus um, would have us do. We're sharing the good news. We're seeing sick people healed. There's real kind of momentum developing in the kingdom of God as they're able to visit more and more places. Even demons are being driven out and uh, loads of stories to tell. And then, bang, have a look at this. Ugh, why? Why do we have to take a bite out of this grim, grisly, just nasty situation? Well, I think there's a few things that maybe it, it helps bring to our attention. Four things about what it means to live for God. Living for God, number one, involves us in a clash of kingdoms. I think Mark has put this here, and obviously it's real events. Mark kind of chose this point to bring it in. So look back, this is what happened to John. So yes, you're going, I'm sending you out, Jesus said to his disciples. But look what happened to the forerunner to Jesus, the prophet who was there to, uh, to prepare the way for Jesus' um, ministry. I'm sending you out, disciples, like Sheep among wolves. So yes, this is exciting. This is our calling. We're surrendering our lives to him and giving ourselves to him. We want to live for him in so many ways. Well, in some ways, different times or another, every disciple of Jesus will encounter this clash of kingdoms. Now, we have it here in a really stark way. There are other times in history when this clash of kingdoms, if you like, the kingdom of God with a very different kingdom has been seen equally starkly. I was just reading this week about what happened to some Christians and, uh, and church leaders uh, straight after uh, the Russian Revolution 
1917. So going back a little bit there. Um, but the, religious communi- the, the, uh, the authorities in the nation cracked down on the religious community and their way of doing that was to target church leaders. And so that, just reading a few stories and testimonies where they had a day's notice. You're going to be arrested tomorrow and taken away. So like 24 hours to sort out their affairs and actually say goodbye to their family. And there's this one guy who, who gets his Bible, puts a whole load of, kind of notes and messages in that Bible for his family and goes and buries it in a secret place so he can say to his family, right, in a couple of weeks' time, go and dig up that Bible so you've still got it. Um, and has to work out, how do I lead my family? How do I shepherd my family when I'm off I'm being taken away. It's unlikely that I'll ever see them again. It's unlikely that I'll, I'll live much longer. Um, loads of these men living for God in Russia died of natural causes in some concentration camp somewhere. Why? Because of the fact that they were living for God. So we can look at the fact that the disciples were sent out and think, yes, triumph, glory, wonder. Look at what God's doing. And it's like, well, yes, living for God also involves this happening. Um, There are probably similar stories. Um, The details will vary. But even that are happening around the world right now, where living for God in Iraq or elsewhere, there's a powerful um, clash of kingdoms. Now it can also be very, very subtle. There's the, there's the kingdom of God. It's all about Jesus. It's all about God. It's all about his power, his purposes, his glory, his word, his ways, his instruction, him strengthening us, our lives being completely in his hands. He's in control and we want to go his way. There's that kingdom. And there's another kingdom. Well, I think maybe that Herod and Herodias uh, illustrate this kingdom quite well. This is not the kingdom of God, it's the kingdom of me. And in the kingdom of me, the focus is on my will, my ways, my aspirations, my hopes, my dreams, what I want to get out of life. So for Herod, I don't want to be married to this person. I think it will work out better with her. Herodias thinking, I want to secure my future. I want to be in charge. I want to be in control. Because actually there's so much that scares me. I need to keep a tight grip on everything and anyone um, that's part of my life. We can, we can buck, buck up against a very different kingdom uh, in our society. Different priorities, different ways of thinking. And uh, this is an encouragement to continue pressing on uh, living for God. Secondly, as well as, living, as, as well as involving a clash of kingdoms, living for God, well, similarly in many ways, involves a cost. Living for God can hurt. Living for God sets us apart. To live for God means we will be different. And so maybe in the same way that Herod responds to John with a mix of admiration and I just don't want to listen to you. Please stop that. Some things I quite like about your life and how you live but there's other stuff I just think, no, you're nuts. Shut up. Um, That that mixed attitude, well, well, that can be what we might encounter ourselves in living for God. Um, Amongst people that 
uh, get to know us. John the Baptist, in living for God, John the Baptist paid with his life. But we might think, yeah, but he was a bit too outspoken, wasn't he? These prophetic types often are. Um, it, was, it was bound to end in tears. If you start kind of challenging and confronting, like the king... Um, that's not really likely to work out very well. He brought it on himself. If he'd just been a little bit more subtle, if he'd been a bit more savvy, he could have lived for longer. Um, He could have still kind of influenced people in a subtle way um, and not be so bold and, uh, and kind of out there. So did John the Baptist bring it on himself? Well... He is a prophet. He was caught up with a vision of what God was doing. And so he was boldly proclaiming God's agenda. His, his life was a demonstration. Things should be different. And so he was warning people, get ready, turn back to God. There was a sense of pleading with people. Get right, I don't want you to miss out on what God is about to do. So here's this one man standing out from the crowd radically different there was always going to be this clash there was always going to be a cost Uh, similarly for us we've got a similar ministry it may not come in precisely the same package and we all start wearing um, weird clothes and eating grasshoppers and living in the desert Um, nevertheless in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 and verse 20 Uh, Again, Paul writing to that church in Corinth um, says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So again, we see here God's desire to use disciples living for him to be part of his kingdom purpose of of kind of pleading with a world around us be reconciled turn back to God by by lifestyle by what we say um, and how we are bringing bringing that message come to God it involves repentance it involves turning away it involves deciding that's it things have got to change I've been going in one direction now I'm coming all the way around and I'm living for for God I've been living for the kingdom of me now I'm seeing that life is is better living God's way and I'm going I want to be part of God's kingdom that's that's the call it's an uncomfortable message but it's wonderfully good news at the same time that's what we're called to do and Mark is pointing out here there is a cost. It's not easy. It's not comfortable. It doesn't make, life, it doesn't make our lives more, more successful. Um, it's not about kind of wealth. It's not going to make us more popular. It's nevertheless what God has called us to be a part of. What this passage also shows us, thirdly, as well as looking at this clash of kingdoms, this personal cost that can be involved, it is actually pointing our attention towards the cross. So it doesn't centre on Jesus. He is not the primary focus of attention as we get this strange flashback. But it is hinting at what is to come. If this is what happened to John the Baptist, if John the Baptist was arrested, if there was a plot to kill John the Baptist, 
If John the Baptist was an innocent, righteous man, if he was executed under, well, really because of embarrassment and social pressure and real kind of opposition to God's kingdom, if that's how they treated the one who was preparing the way for Jesus, what was going to happen to Jesus himself? He was arrested. There was a plot to kill him. He's a completely innocent man. And he was executed by the order of a tyrant, in his case, Pilate, bowing to social pressure. There's no reason to kill this man. But because, well, this time not Herodias, but because these chief priests and these rulers in the Jewish nation are piling the pressure on, I'm just going to have to let, let in, give in. Um, even the, the detail of... Um, of burial. We find out there in verse 29, on hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. What's going to happen to Jesus' body when he's taken down from the cross? Joseph of Arimathea would go and say, can I have his body? And he took the body down and he wrapped Jesus' body up and he took it and he laid Jesus' body in a tomb. And so actually living for God at all, going on adventures of faith, receiving from Jesus authority to go and do the same stuff and be part of him uh, and his kingdom it's only possible because Jesus went to the cross we could only come and be part of what God's doing on this planet and be in relationship and in partnership with him because of Jesus going to the cross so we get here almost just a, a, a glimpse a hint this is where it's heading this is where the kingdom of God is going the king is going to die the king is going to die in our place. We're getting a hint of that now. That's the unusual, strange filling that we encounter here. Slap bang in the middle of Mark chapter 6. And then very briefly, we have this other thin slice of bread at the end. We had the disciples at the outset. Now, um, the apostles rather, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him, all they had done and taught. They come back. We already kind of knew from earlier in the chapter their, their, their mission trip. Their first mission had gone well. These guys are living for God. They're going to encounter these things for themselves. Perhaps they came back with uh, an awareness. Actually, yeah, we, we're involved in this clash of kingdoms. There is a cost for us. I wonder where this is all heading anyway. Let's just see. They come back with stories to tell. But perhaps, here again, there is a slight hint. A slight hint that for these disciples, perhaps their focus was a little off-center. It's a little bit subtle. But notice how they reported to him all they had done and taught. Well, really, what accounts for them having any measure of success is that they'd spent time with Jesus and Jesus had given them his authority. So really, though I don't mean to split hairs, they could have come back and reported to Jesus all that God had done. If you see what I mean. But there's a, a focus still on, on themselves. So another lesson, another thing that we can pick out of this unusual sandwich 
So even in the midst of living for God, doing the stuff, being used by God to bring new, um, new life and breakthrough into people's lives, it's possible for us to drift into representing this other kingdom. We've seen the kingdom of God. It's all about him. It's all about God. It's about his power. It's about him getting glory. It's about his purposes. It's about his timing. It's about his will and his word and his instructions. And our lives are in his hands. We're going on adventures of faith with him. And we're going to see what God does as we step out. But perhaps a subtle shift into the kingdom of me. And in the kingdom of me, subtly, it starts to become about me, my, my strength, hopefully my, my glory, my purposes, my, my hopes, my aspirations, my ways, my thoughts. I've started to realise actually it's, my life is, works out better when it's in my hands. I'll, I'll shape it, I'll control it, I'll determine the timing well, that's actually drifting into the character we see here with, in an extreme way with Herod and Herodias. Living for me. Actually, living for me results in loads of anxiety and angst. Maybe sometimes using other people to try and get what I want. It means sometimes, like Herod, I don't really want to pay attention to how my conscience is just getting stabbed on this issue. So, like Herod, I'm just going to do nothing. I'll leave that to another time. God's trying to get my attention on something, and I'm saying, not now, thank you. And it doesn't feel like a massive decision. I'm just being passive. I'll just, no, it's, it's, that's... But one passive decision followed by another pa- passive decision followed by another passive decision. I'm backing myself into a corner and what decision will I then make? Herod makes a massive decision that he regrets because he's been living for me. He's been trying to placate Herodias. He's just been trying to keep life simple, follow the line of least resistance, keep things simple, do things my way make some rash decisions that backfire big time and when we're living or when we're drifting into the kingdom of me that's the way our lives contend or contend to massive anxiety and fretfulness that means I've got to seize control of my life I've got to make sure that I'm in charge in the way that Herodias responded so it would be preferable in a sense with this particular sandwich just to have the bread the disciples went they're wonderfully effective on the very first time even though they weren't really ready and they came back with loads of stories to tell and uh, we're called into this living for God so yeah my life's at your disposal do all that you will but we need to pay attention to these little hints these little warnings this grim story of what happens living for the kingdom of me. That we're not kind of just drifting through 
with expectations that everything's always going to work out perfectly. There's never going to be any challenge. There's never going to be any clash. There's never going to be any cost. Uh, No, we say, actually, Lord, that can happen. Nevertheless, all the same, I'm putting my life in your hands. Do with it what you will. I want to follow you, Lord. Amen? Let's... uh, well, why don't we stand together? We'll worship just a moment. Let's, let's come before God, and I'm going to pray as well.